If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and it's just about to be Labor Day 2018, which is a sad time for animation fans because we're now just days away from the, the Adventure Time finale. I know, it's it's come to an end. It's, it's almost 10 years the show has been on, and Lord knows that there's been a lot of uh, product that's been out there and a lot of great memories. And I know you're a big fan of the show, right, Jim? My daughter introduced me to the show, and there was an episode where they did the backstory of the Ice King. That was the one that just sort of broke my heart, sucked me into the show, and I've been on board ever since. But between the art direction, the left-handed story quality, I mean, just what John DiMaggio and Tom Kenny have done on the show... I don't want to leave the Candy Kingdom. <laughs> you got to leave Ooh sooner I, or later, Jim. I, I know, I know. But but on the other hand, just before we started recording today, Drew clued me into, you have such an amazing tie to the show. I, I cannot believe you haven't told this story before. Yeah, so Penn Ward, who created the show and who ran it for about four or five years, was actually my best friend in middle school growing up. And I remember he and I would draw on each other's homework. And it was so amazing, especially when the first short came up. We didn't know that there was going to be a show. But when that first short came up that in 2007 from, I think it was on Raw Tunage or one of those mm-hmm. uh, programs. But it was amazing because it was literally the drawings that he would draw on my homework brought to life. And it's that same, he has that same quirky sensibility, same humor it's just it's amazing and so i see pen every once in a while and and one time he came and visited me while we were while i was at disney and of course we ate lunch near tv animation and some executive kind of swooped in and said pen wouldn't you love to do a show for us and he's like no never 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 again but i mean it's just been an amazing ride and it's been so great to see his creation sort of succeed in such an amazing way because he really does deserve it I remember my friend Justin Jorgensen, who went to CalArts, and he had his friend, Stephen Hillenberg. And he called one day and said, hey, they're going to pick up you know, an idea that Steve's done and go to series with it. And say, oh, what's the series about? <laughs> he said, well, the name is SpongeBob SquarePants. And I made him repeat it like three times because it was like, they were just four different words that didn't belong together. It was like, <laughs> sponge what? Uh, square what? You know, it just yeah. it was like, boy, that's never going to fly. But the same thing. I mean, just... The, yeah, it's amazing. So what has it been like, though, to watch something from that was on your math book become well, plush I mean, it, It's just amazing. T-shirt. Yeah, T-shirt. I mean, I think that's part of the reason why... He, Penn is such an interesting guy, and I, I don't know if you've ever met him, but he's just so... He's so introverted and quiet and this, you know, it exploding like it did, it was crazy. I remember talking to him before the series started and I said, well, why did you change the name of the, the main character? Because in the short, mm-hmm. his name is Penn. The mm-hmm. kid is, kid's name is Penn. He said, you know, I just didn't want my name on something that I knew would be sort of commodified. Mm-hmm. And so he's got this kind of like great hippie spirit mm-hmm. and that sweetness, that weirdness, all of that, that's all pen. Mm-hmm. So it's just been amazing for me. And, you know, every time I see him, I make him doodle something for me on a, on a coaster or whatever we have because he's always drawing and his art is amazing. And so it's great. I mean, I, I, I don't get to see him as much as I'd like to. He kind of just hangs out in his house, very uh, Charles Foster Kane, but, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> but he's he's great and i'll run into him in burbank and and so you know he's he's a wonderful one-of-a-kind guy and i'm so happy this this show has done what it's done because it, um, it really was a phenomenon and it, I think... and no absolutely so when he announced walking away from the show and and don't get me wrong i actually have a lot of respect for people who do this mm-hmm. the bill waterstons the gary larson's of the world in penn's case it was like 
he wanted to step away. He was perfectly happy to let it continue. He, they'd put together such a wonderful team. Right. But it was just the whole notion of, I don't want to do this anymore. I love, you know, perfectly happy to let the characters live on. And and didn't he come back to help with the finale or do some... Yeah, I don't know. He's not credited with anything. I, I understand that he's sort of kept an eye on storylines mm-hmm. and stuff like that. I know Patrick Mc- McHale came back for one of the final episodes mm-hmm. who was an instrumental creative force in the early part of the show and then left and did over the garden wall which i think oh is one of our favorite God, things yes. in the world <laughs> and what you i think you appreciate too is like how much of the current animation landscape has come out of adventure time whether it's rebecca sugar doing steven universe or darren nefsey who does star versus the force of evil and alex hirsch who did gravity falls were both classmates of pens <laughs> at cal arts <laughs> and i feel like adventure time kind of broke some of the ground that's really being explored now in terms of LGBTQ themes in children's animation with the kind of implied romantic relationship between Marceline and the bubblegum princess. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's just amazing to see how this show has kind of shaped animation for the last few years on TV. Well, absolutely. But at the same time, it is such, such a wonderful left-handed quality. And so often, I love how it blends surreal and sweet and gentle i mean yeah. it's just that's why i'm just sad that we're come to the end of the road i don't want to leave Ood. i know well th- there is that dvd that's coming out like i think the day after the finale of the that's like the last three or four seasons no. in one dvd okay that so at least we'll have that you know and... but i i guess we we have to warn folks that i think it was john dimaggio was at comic-con talking about recording the last episode and I, and I guess there's a song that Jake sings that I want to say Penn had a hand in it or, or something to the effect. Oh, really? And he just said, I could, you know, I'm in tears recording it. In fact, I guess he, he got teary just at the panel talking about it. So, oh, my uh, Lord. But very, very, very much looking forward to, to seeing this. And given what a wonderful job he did, I'm, I'm kind of hoping that Penn at some point comes out of Xanadu and does something else. I know, I know. He seems so uninterested, though. I mean, he's he didn't like the fact that he had to manage people, he had to fire people, you know, that kind of thing. He's such a sweet guy that it was it, it sort of like caused him distress to have to do these kind of like corporate things. So he's like, he told me he he wrote a draft of the Adventure Time movie, which apparently is still in development, mm-hmm. and he's working on video games, and that's. It seems like that's kind of it. Ten years ago, when he came on the canvas, there were only a couple of places you could bring shows where you could do this sort of stuff. And clearly, that has changed. I mean, in fact, just look at the news of, of the past week. We, we have Alex Hirsch, who, again, you know, Drew and I are big fans of. We were just talking up the, the Gravity Falls graphic novel. And here's Alex. Uh, he signed a deal with Netflix. My first question to you, Drew, was... What happened to the Fox thing? Well, did I tell you about this? Because I talked to him before the Blu-ray set came out, and he said that that was sort of overblown in the press, that he said there was no Fox thing. I never want to call somebody a liar. (laughs) It's literally a month before Gravity Falls ends its run on Disney, all right? And there's the announcement in the trades, January 2016, that Alex has signed with 20th Century Fox to develop a new animated series for Fox. The exact quote out of the Variety piece is, I'm cooking up some brand new weirdness. And this story says that he was supposed to deliver a script and a presentation pilot. Now we jump ahead to December of 2017 and he posts on Twitter, just as you said, I actually never pitched a show to Fox. We had discussions early on a while back about working together, which was wildly reported. But I ended up pursuing something else entirely, and then secret stuff. So right. I guess the reporter could have gotten it wrong. But I mean, the thing of the deal is script, presentation pilot, and face it. Right. I'm gonna look. You and I both know a presentation pilot can be two minutes long, five minutes long. Right. But it's just sort of a taste of the world and look at the characters and that sort of thing. It sounded to me when I talked to him that he was working on a feature more than anything else. So I. I would suspect that the first thing we're going to see from this Netflix deal, which is supposed to include movies and TV shows, is a feature, an animated feature from him, I would say in the next year, probably. 
The interesting thing of this report, it mentions that this is going to allow him to transition to quote-unquote adult animation. And when you think about how weird and scary (laughs) (laughs) Gravity Falls often got, it's like, oh dear lord, do we really want to see adult animation from Alex Hirsch? I mean, I I don't want to sleep with the lights on for the rest of my life. You know, just sort of, (laughs) I'm still getting over the Summerine episode where I love the monster in that that was sort of just stepped out of the Miyazaki world. And yeah. All right, no, more power to him. Happy to see what he he delivers to Netflix and, you know, would love to see a feature film from him, but love to see an animated series. But, but again, wouldn't necessarily object to him circling back to Gravity Falls at some point. Yeah, I think he probably will. I mean, it's good that it, that it shows that Netflix really is serious about animation. I mean, we've seen the, the Matt Groening series just came out, just Enchantment. And they picked up Little Prince last year. I mean, they seem to be pretty serious about animation. Would you agree? I mean, have you heard anything in terms of their kind of uh, commitment or direction of that stuff? The thing I keep hearing is that they want binge-worthy animation. On your recommendation, my daughter Alice is out visiting... We've begun watching Disenchantment. We're about, I want to say, four episodes in. And you look at Disenchantment, and it's just sort of, my eye keeps drifting to the backgrounds because they are <laughs> so ridiculously well done and, yeah. and so designed. And it's one of these things where I'm hoping I'll soon pivot back to the actual characters. Disenchantment was, was written to sort of have a longer story. It's not a right. 22 and out and... When we return to the world, the next episode, you know, everything's the same. So that's kind of what I'm hearing is the whole notion of give us a long story. Yeah. And that can be challenging because it's, do you do the breadcrumbing or do you write a full arc? Are you familiar with the podcast Adventure Zone? No, I've heard this mentioned a couple of times, but I have not. No. It's this wonderful epic story told with great humor and in fact they just recently did a graphic novel based on the first arc that gives some idea of the fan base and how crazy people are about this this podcast it was the number one bestseller in the new york times so they really yeah honestly drew i highly recommend it because it has such a wonderful left-handed sense of humor to it but at the same time this great epic storytelling is 52 or 56 episodes and we Alice you know has been nice enough to sort of revisit them with me while she's visiting and I think we're 10 or 12 out from the end and it's like oh this is gonna end soon I'm gonna have to leave <laughs> you're having a lot of separation anxiety I am I am yeah. I can't well, it's summer going into fall and we get very melancholy here the leaves die you know you have to go out and shovel snow but the fermented apple cider helps a lot. Anyway, moving on to the next news, you have seen Space Jam, yes? I have. And our opinions are... I am not a fan of Space Jam at all. <laughs> I, don't know what you, I don't know what you think. It's, it's taken on kind of a weird cult thing it has. in recent years. It has. There's all this new merchandise. There's Funko Pop figures mm-hmm. and t-shirts at Target and... I don't really get it, because the movie is so bad. It lacks all of the charm of something like Roger Rabbit. I don't think the animation is very good. Michael Jordan is not an actor. I'm not a fan. I don't. How do you feel about it? As somebody who grew up loving the Looney Tunes shorts, it was tough between the crowd scenes where they do the really bad animation cycles in the background, so you're constantly sort yeah. of like... Okay, there's that same cartoon bear keeps making the same gesture. Or just the fact that because Michael Jordan is just not much of an actor, and having come into this sort of world through Who Framed Roger Rabbit, showing what could be possible. Oh, oh before, yeah. before we continue here, we really need to mention that that Roger Rabbit book is coming. Yes. Pull a, a rabbit out of my hat is... Dot com Is that yeah. the name of the website? Yeah. Drew and I have just been made aware that there's a making of Roger Rabbit book. This author has done such an amazing job of interviewing cast and crew and chased down 
all sorts of early presentation reels. In fact, one of the things he's chased down is the animation test for Roger Rabbit 2. Kind of surprised that he found that, but didn't find... There's at least a couple of things out there of, of Mencken playing This Only Happens in the Movies from... Um, from Who Discovered Roger Rabbit? Yeah. Yeah. Pulling a rabbit out of a hat.com. He has a lot of great art from the Daryl Van Kidder's version oh, yeah. and all of that stuff. He's a Canadian author named Ross Anderson, who has talked to over 140 people involved in the production. He even does like layouts of the studio of uh, Richard Williams' studio in, in London. And it's really, it's pretty incredible. I think we were both pretty surprised at how much stuff was on the site. Oh, I agree. The weird thing is I've seen little bits and pieces of this over time, but he, he does things like, I've always heard the story of Jeffrey calling everybody back to New York to yell at them about, you will meet this deadline. In fact, there's the famous story of he pulls Don Hahn over to the window, and I guess they're up on like the 15th floor, and he gestures, and they, they can see a crew of people in the street pouring asphalt. And he's like, you know why you're going to finish this film? Because if you don't, Don, I'm going to make sure that's your job. You'll never work in Hollywood again. They, all you'll be able to do is pave streets. And then they had to fly back and make the movie. Yeah, and, and his threat was years before it would even coalesce into something that was <laughs> all right know. all right <laughs> yeah no. that's uh, talk that's that's the funniest part about just how, what a what a pain in the ass this movie really was yeah. um which i'm assuming space jam was too but do you remember the marketing lead up to space jam also uh, i remember as a kid thinking oh my god i've never seen a movie pushed as hard as this mm-hmm. from the warner brothers studio store do you remember those like absolutely so much stuff and and the weird thing of it is okay so it, it it's an 80 million dollar budget it comes out it makes 90 million dollars domestic it makes 140 overseas so what you, you basically you end up with just shy of a quarter of a billion dollars and and i guess on the back of again the merch that you know warner brothers right. thought it was successful enough that the very next year they get started on space jam 2 which I guess for the next film, same thing. It was going to be a sports-based feature. But they wanted to hire Mel Brooks to do the voice of a villain called Berserko. Okay. Michael Jordan, I guess, it had been kind of torturous for him to to make the movie. And I guess they did have him on the hook contract-wise for a sequel. But he's like, I don't want to come back. I really don't want to right. do this. So Warner Brothers decision to, well, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll go the other way. We'll get another charismatic African-American athlete. And so they, what they were going to do is sort of put Michael Jordan in the supporting role to, you know, sort of an extended cameo. And the star of the movie was going to be Tiger Woods. Wow. Thank God that's in there. Well, you know, <laughs> Tiger Woods sexually harasses half of the Looney Tunes. Uh. Have you seen Robot Chicken actually? I don't know if they, they knew about this or they parodied it, but basically they, they've got this wonderful skit they did this past season where it's Tiger Woods wants his own Space Jam, but nobody wants anything to do with Tiger Woods. So instead of Warner Brothers, he signs with Deke. So wow. it's all of those horrible animated series from the the 80s and the 90s. <laughs> and yes, the whole time he, he's sexually harassing the, the right. characters. But but anyway, okay, so Space Jam 2 does not go forward, but Warner's is determined to get back into the Looney Tunes building feature films around them. So for a time, it became, instead of Space Jam, it was Spy Jam. They were going to do... Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, so that's Jackie Chan with the notion of, okay, that'll work internationally. That falls apart for some reason. They then pitch Race Jam? I did not know about this. With Jeff Gordon. This is on the back of numerous meetings with NASCAR. And they're like, oh, yeah, we want this to happen. Just from a merchandising and audience presentation point of view. About the same time, Joe Dante... Remind me, Drew, I've actually got this script in my basement. I got a, a, a Oh, yeah, Charlie Haas wrote that script. I, I haven't, I've never read it, so I'm going to make you bring it to me next time we, okay. we see each other. Okay, but it, the Termite Terrace Project. Basically, yeah. this is the story of young Chuck Jones coming to the Warner Brothers lot and you know what he experiences working in the tumble-down building Termite Terrace where all of the great Warner Brothers shorts were, were animated. 
Joe because, of course, he's, you know, the director of, of Gremlins and... Inner Space. Yes. Matinee. There we go. The Burbs. Yeah. He gets the meeting with Warners, but they're basically, look, I know this is about our studio and we're flattered, but it's old. Right. We want you to do Space Jam 2, which Joe Dante hated Space Jam. So he said, okay, I will come here, but only if you allow me to make the anti-Space Jam, which ends up being Looney Tunes back in action. Now, how do we feel about that one, Drew? I'm glad you brought this up because I think the one time that Eric Goldberg has actually bristled at something I've said mm. when, when chatting with him, and I, you and I are both friends with, with Eric, mm-hmm. but I brought up Looney Tunes back in action as being kind of a, a failure, and he said, well, the animation was perfect in Looney Tunes back in action. Well, because I think he felt that he really brought forward all of the the great nuance of the classic Warner Brothers animation, which I think he did to a large degree, but it doesn't help that that movie is saddled with Brendan Fraser and uh, who was it? Jenna Elfman mm-hmm. as very uncharismatic mm-hmm. leads and a plot that's kind of all over the place. And I like parts of that movie. It's pretty wacky, but it does not. I don't think it works together as a whole. To hear Dante talk about it, it was honestly the the worst year and a half of my life that Warner Brothers executives would not leave him alone. They changed the beginning, the middle. You can actually see on the, the DVD the original ending where they go to this temple in the jungle and Tweety Bird winds up regressing to a dinosaur and eating Steve Martin's character. Wow, that's so, cool. There's a couple of things I actually do like about this film. There's that wonderful little throwaway scene in the the Warner Brothers dining room on the lot where you have Porky Pig and Speedy Gonzalez sort of commiserating the fact that because one's an ethnic stereotype, I'm never going to get work again. And and Porky, because, well, and I I make fun of stuttering, so I'm never going to get work again. Yeah. There's also (laughs) that great little moment where Matthew Lillard is, is basically almost starts brawling with the animated Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. I mean, there were things to like in it. Oh, for sure. I think Eric's dead on. The animation is amazing, but with that much interference, there's only so much great animation can do. Yeah. If you don't have a compelling story, if you're not invested, to circle back to Roger Rabbit for a little bit, I mean, that's a story where you're actually invested. Though this book that is coming, you know, did you read the part about one of the things that got cut out of the movie was Eddie Valiant was supposed to have like a history with Betty Boop? Like they were a couple? No. For a while? I didn't see that. No, that's amazing. There's so much that Bob Hoskins does in the movie that's absolutely amazing. But his little scene at the, the Ink and Paint Club with Betty, there is such warmth she's real to him in that yeah. scene there's no reality in Looney Tunes no in none, none. I, I would say that you don't feel anything like you said there's clever things but well yeah honestly one of my favorite moments out of Looney Tunes back in action has absolutely nothing to do with animation it's Steve Martin the evil genius who's trying to to get the giant television in his office to work and there were the five remotes on his desk and there's this just wonderful bit of Steve Martin business where he's making his way through the five remotes trying to be an evil genius but can't get the image to come up on the television. I live that every day of my life. (laughs) So what you're saying, it'll be a miracle if you figure out how to watch the adventure. Pretty much, pretty much. I apologize to the other residents in New Hampshire. There will be a lot of loud swearing shortly. Well, I mean, I think that audiences obviously felt the same way we did about Back in Action. It was not not a success. A classic Hollywood cycle. So, yeah, it comes out in November 2003, and it's like, okay, we're not going to do that anymore. But now, jump ahead five years, and suddenly Warner Brothers really starts to get serious about we want to do something with these Looney Tune characters. So the first thing out of the gate is a Marvin Martian movie, which, by the way, you can go on YouTube and watch the test for. It's called You'll Be Sorry. And they got far enough along with this thing where they hired Mike Myers to be the voice of Marvin the Martian and Christopher Lee as Santa Claus. I love Christopher Lee, and that would have been insane. 
I don't know. What was the story supposed to be? Basically, Marvin Martian and Santa Claus end up battling for who will control Christmas. Oh, that old story. And oh, Santa's God. way of defeating Marvin is to basically tie him into a toy box, wrap the box, and leave it with a with the child and then they this child now unwraps marvin and shenanigans ensue when you look at the test it's cg from 2008 so it's not great but okay. there's something there i really feel like i don't know if there was a full movie maybe there was a holiday special when when, when was the lebron james space jam that's thing? 2014 oh okay so I'm jumping ahead. But in between right. that, uh, August of 2010, there's talk of a live-action CG Bugs Bunny movie. October of that same year is the very first time we hear about an Acme Warehouse movie, which, by the way, was supposed to be Warner Brothers' response to Night at the Museum. And the thing that they were trying to be to the box office with this was Disney's Magic Kingdom project, the Favreau thing. Oh, yeah. Was this the one that was supposed to star Steve Carell? I want to say yes. Okay. The exact same month that they announced that there's Acme Warehouse movies. Here's another. Mike Myers, you know, back in the mix, only instead of a Marvin Martian movie, now he's going to be the voice of Pepe Le Pew. Interesting. Even Stranger. Jump ahead to April of 2016, and remember, you know, there was actually that joke about Speedy Gonzalez can't be used in Looney Tunes backs in action because he's an ethnic stereotype. But April 2016, here's Warner Brothers announcing a Speedy Gonzalez movie. They were actually going to do an origin story for the character, and Eugenio Derbez, a great Mexican star, was thrilled that he got tapped for this role and right. couldn't wait to do it. And jump ahead to July of, of that same year, and here's Max Landis at Comic-Con, and in between everything else that he wrote, like, you know, the Dirk Gently and the Space Mountain movie, I think that we talked about. Yes, that's right. You've heard the story of that Space Mountain movie, right? Oh, yeah. I actually reached out to him uh, not that long ago, when I was at Disney still, actually, to talk about his Space mm -hmm. Mountain movie but the plot was insane which if you want to recount what it is you will know why it was not made when you hear the the plot synopsis the notion was that faster than light travel it had just become possible but there's a horrible side effect that when you travel at faster than light get the, the, the speed of faster than light you leave your soul behind and right. once your soul leaves your body over a set period of time you become a monster. Yes. So you'd arrive at your destination mm. and then transform into a horrible creature. <laughs> Here's Disney sitting. I guess they, they have Max's screenplay. And it's like, hmm, we have this. And we just made Tomorrowland that nobody went to. And, and we have Star Wars. Hmm. What should we do? <laughs> what a hard decision that what must have been. <laughs> and I guess this is... Different than the Mike Myers project from the 2008 thing. Eight. From so he, he's writing yeah. a Pepe Le Pew movie. So, so there's all this stuff out there. And now here we are with Coyote versus Acme, which I guess is that after all of these products fail him, you know, in his pursuit of the Roadrunner, that he decides, I'm getting myself a lawyer. And it's just. Do you think there's a whole movie here in that log line? Yeah, well, when I read that plot description, I thought, is this going to be like a courtroom mm -hmm. drama? Is this going to be like B-movie? How B-movie becomes <laughs> a courtroom animated drama for the second uh -huh. half of the movie? I, I don't know. I, it's so weird to me to think about how poorly Warner Brothers has managed these beloved characters over the past two decades, three decades. Yeah. I mean... The fact that Disney is able to was able to produce those amazing Paul Reddish Mickey mm -hmm. Mouse shorts and get him back in the yep. bloodstream, and obviously we're seeing all of the merchandise that's accompanying the 90th anniversary mm -hmm. of, of Mickey, including a experience in New York mm -hmm. and all of that. It's depressing. It's like seeing your favorite relative locked up in an old <laughs> folks' home. You know, it's like why why aren't these characters being better utilized besides you know Six Flags or whatever. Remember earlier this year, we saw that thousand hour initiative. Yeah. What we were told at that time is that, 
you know, a lot of these these artists, these shorts, they were going to be sort of a, a proof of concept, a testing ground for new looks, new takes on the characters. So who knows? I mean, you know, maybe maybe this is a brilliant script. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. All I want is for them to come back in a big way. But is this going to be the one to do it? Speaking of coming back in a big way, we should probably stop for a, a quick commercial break here because when we get back... Drew has some information to share about a certain animated film coming back in a way that I'm kind of surprised. But hang in there, folks. We'll be back in just a second. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we're back. Okay, so how are we going to do this? Because <laughs> what are you allowed well, to say I, this here? This is what I'll say. So earlier this week, I was kind of secreted away to a facility in North Hollywood and shown a 4K restoration of one mm-hmm. of your favorite animated Disney classic coming back for for holiday. But I can't talk about what it is because it hasn't been mm-hmm. announced yet. But if you've got a 4K TV and you've got the right setup, it's going to impress you. Although I couldn't tell a whole lot of difference between the two versions of the movie that I was watching. But I'm sure if you have the right setup, it's going to be incredible. This will be laddering into um, to certain uh, certain corporate priorities in 2019. Okay. okay. Um, I think we're being just vague enough. Yes, I think so. Okay. Speaking of which, though, we're coming to the the outermost edge of the embargo for Ralph Breaks the Internet. Drew and I were, were, Disney was nice enough to invite us in for the early press days, so to speak. And now that we're freer to talk about this, I enjoy some of the ideas that Richmore and the team have sort of put together here you know the whole notion of the netizens versus the, the actual citizens of the web right what jim's talking about because no one no one yeah. understands not yet not yet <laughs> there are yeah. char- mm-hmm. not yet not yet but i think we can say that there are characters who live exclusively on the web people who are like uh, characters that are search engines or auctioneers at ebay and those characters are they only live in the internet but there are also users that log on to the internet and they interface with these other characters. And so there's kind of going to be some back and forth there, we think. I mean, we should also allude to the fact that we, we haven't seen the movie yet and we haven't seen anything from the third act. We've probably seen, what, 15 or 20 minutes total? So we're guessing as much as anything well, else. Well, they do go places that I think are kind of surprising. They actually showed us some footage of Wreck-It Ralph going to the dark web. And it was one of these things right. It's like, really? We're going to go there? And on the other hand, the netizens are the physical representation of, of the people who are on the web using the internet, right? And then there's the, the so. actual people who live in the web. When I was talking with Rich about these and pointed out that when I looked at them, they had the wonderful sort of curvy design of cartoon characters from the 50s and, you know, said it, it reminded me a lot of Vip, the, you know, the, the cartoon. And it, and Rich just sort of smiled and it's like, okay, there we go. Okay, you know, One person gets it. Right. And what's lovely is that the netizens are very square, little blocky people who have their own little animation cycles. I mean, it's just, it, it's very much this divided world. Yeah, they look sort of like when mm-hmm. you first got a Wii and you kind of created your avatar. They look quite, kind of like that. Yeah. And then coupled with the visual scale of this thing, I mean, when they go to basically the urban environment that is the web. I love the conceit about how supposedly as the web got bigger and bigger, all of the things that, you know, those of us who've been using the web since, you know, the early 90s, all of those, the web got sort of built on top of the web. So they, the cityscape basically got driven down 
by everything that was being built up. So it's not just mm -hmm. this vast, you know, you, you're looking at a great distance, but also there's this, again, this huge depth to the world. And, I, you know, they, they would show these street scenes where it was sidewalks above boulevards, above highways. And I think the establishing shot, when they talk about the beauty shot where Vanellope and Ralph are standing on that balcony looking out over you know it's the first time they've they've you know they've gone to the internet and they're they're experiencing it and it's supposedly in that one shot there are five hundred thousand characters some of them are literally right. a pixel tall but between the vehicles and when would was talking with the, the art directors about that. And evidently the, the description of the script is the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. And they were all like, oh, man. Well, weren't they, didn't it kind of, didn't it crash oh, some God. of the computing stations too? That they had to kind of pull back on the detail and make it a little bit more modular just to be able to compute all yeah, this stuff? Yeah, I mean, it, it, so I, I, I guess what Drew and I are saying here, folks, is that someday very soon, we're all just watching this on our phones, right? But, you know, if yeah. you get the chance, and this thing is in IMAX, do yourself a favor, give yourself a treat, go see it on the biggest possible screen, because there is so much stuff crammed into this. I mean, just just the establishing shot for eBay, where it's like you have hundreds right. of auctions going on at one time and people milling about, moving about the space and all that. I mean, it just, it looks amazing. But as, as Drew mentioned, part of the problem is here, we've seen 20 minutes and there's a lot of stuff that's, that's sort of Disney's kept inside the kimono for now. And hopefully fairly right. soon we'll be able to circle around and see the rest. And Well, do you have any, do you have any updates on the, um, on the ride? that we've been hearing more about. You know, these. yes, yes, I do. This is Bob Chapek's world, and we just pay a whole lot of money to go visit it. <laughs> Bob has basically said that the original Wreck-It Ralph did very well at the box office, I want to say close to half a billion worldwide. But here's the thing, that when you're looking at, say, a Zootopia that made over a billion dollars, likewise a Frozen, it's one of these things where it's like... Mm. I realize I have a problem with all of my Tomorrowlands around the world. And, you know, I have this generation of children who, when they're showed the Autopia, you know, it's just sort of like, what did I do wrong? Why are you punishing me? They want a racing game. You know, they're raised on real racing games. Basically right. what Bob has said, you know, that there was all this work that was initially done. It was out there as a, a Wreck-It Ralph ride idea, but it was basically an idea that, that had come by way of Tony Baxter with the notion that you could basically put 30 or some odd people in a room with virtual reality helmets and they could actually race against one another and but they would the problem was at that point that Disney didn't have a story that, that featured racing and then of course here comes Wreck-It Ralph right so for a time this was being proposed for the Tomorrowland at Walt Disney World, it was being set up to go into the old alien encounter, flight to the moon, mission to Mars building. You could use both of the theaters because of the multi-layered effect of the theater. You could load basically 30 people in at a time. But the problem was between setting up the helmets on everybody. I mean, it was going to have a very, very slow load which was right. why they love the fact that they had the second theater. So as they're loading one theater and explaining it to people, the other theater can be experiencing it. And then once three and a half minute ride experience and they dump the theater, they bring in the next group. And, you know, I mean, you could get some capacity out of it. That was one of the reasons why. Well, the two reasons, you know, again, Wreck-It Ralph made money, but not big money and didn't necessarily right. have a giant retail program. They honestly believe that this movie is going to have a giant retail program, but only on the back of that princess sequence. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you folks have seen the footage of the Disney princesses where Vanellope basically wanders into their backstage dressing room and they, they all bond. I don't know how much footage there is out of when they all get comfy I think there was one in that footage where they mm -hmm. introduced the Gal Gadot character, but I, I have confirmed that all of those t-shirts will be available. 
When you see the Disney princesses lounging with Vanellope, because the thing is, they see Vanellope in her sweatshirt, and what is this amazing fabric, and I must have one. Cinderella says, I'll get these, get my mice right on this. And the next thing you know, you see them all in in t-shirts and sweatshirts. And yes, but there's that every single one of those is going out in the world. And and my understanding is Hot Topic is all over this. Shop Disney, I'm sure, will have them. So this is going to have a giant retail component. They believe that the Grand Theft Auto riff that they're doing in this... Because, again, initially when they were designing the attraction, it was based off the Sugar Rush game. And it was one of these things where, in the end, the the folks at Imagineering, and and they showed it to the folks at, at Parks and Resorts, and they were like, it's cool, it really is, but does it fit Tomorrowland? One of the things they actually used to stop the project, to bludgeon it, was Monsters, Inc., the Laugh Floor. Oh, God. There's nothing wrong with comedy Laugh Floor except the fact that it's in Tomorrowland. It does not fit there. If Disney were to take this show and just literally lift it out of the Magic Kingdom and drop it down into the Disney Hollywood Studios uh, as part of a Monsters, Inc. land... No one would complain. Right. That fits. And and in fact, that was at one time part of the plan for the Monsters, Inc. land. In much the same way that Toy Story Land in Disney Hollywood Studios is two brand new rides and a third older ride that got a third track added. So that kind of <laughs> makes it new. Uh, that was sort of the thinking. In fact, I guess Chapek is a really big on the notion of I want things based on IPs but I don't necessarily want to pay for new ride systems so he's actually for example been talking about how he'd like to take Space Ranger Spin out of Disneyland Park in in Tomorrowland and move that over to California Adventure so they could basically take the Ant-Man and the Wasp attraction that's been created for Hong Kong and just redo it yeah, clone that for California Adventure as part of the supersized Marvel Land that's being built to, to hopefully persuade people when they they can't get into Disneyland because, you know, everybody got up at 6 o'clock in the morning to get into Galaxy's Edge so they right. can go, dr- go drink alcohol. <laughs> right. So that at least, well, you can go to Marvel Land. You can go over there. So now with the slaughter, slaughter race, is that it? Is that it's making it more appealing to be in Tomorrowland? They're definitely eyeballing it, and in fact, to be honest, it's what's kind of driving the bus right now, and it's just, it is really kind of sad that this is this the way it is. When you come out of Stitch's Great Escape, you're dumped into that retail space. Mm-hmm. He's just envisioning, it's like, and they walk in, and there are all the princess t-shirts. You know, and there are all the, the princess dolls in those t-shirts, or they're the plush of the, right, the casual. Right, 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 right. There's a financial threshold here that if this movie makes a certain amount of money, this is a go project. If, on okay. the other hand, if Ralph breaks the internet, does not meet financial expectations, there's no need to proceed. You know, they'll be happy to find different places to do this retail program. And there is a redo, rethink of the Tomorrowland at both Disneyland and Walt Disney World that is in the works. Can we say what that is? The problem is it is literally so (laughs) fluid at this point. Okay. Well, maybe if we get confirmation that it's locked down, we can talk about it. See, the problem is that I'm the guy who for four and five years while Lone Ranger was making its way through for de- development. I mean, I saw the art. I literally saw the art of the overlay for Lone Ranger for Big Thunder Mountain. So I, I knew this was coming, and I saw I would speak confidently, because, of course, it's it's Gore Verbinski directing Johnny Depp, who had been in all right. the pirate movies. And, of course, this was going to be a hit. And, of course, Disney was going to bring it into the park and crash, burn. You know, and, it, yeah. and over time, Drew, I have learned that when I speak confidently about things and they don't happen... People get cranky. <laughs> they blame me because it's like, oh, that it's ride. Project didn't... Genesis all over again. Yes. And yeah. it's just sort of like, it's not my fault. Interesting pivot point. We are going to be talking about stuff like this when we do our walk in the park thing. That the, When we do our Pixar in the park thing in November. I don't know 
how many of you folks are aware that Drew and I will be doing a, a fine-tuning-based event? We're working with the very nice folks at Storybook Destinations. They were the same folks who, who helped Len and I put together our Disney Dish Live show last year that was so well-received. In fact, we're, we're back at Disney's Coronado Springs Hotel. That, that's what we're going to be based at. Have you ever been there, Drew? Or I've never been. I okay. I know of it, and I know it's supposed to be great, but I have never been. So I'm very excited, and I'm very excited to walk around the park with you and whoever signs up for this uh, crazy adventure and to record an episode down there and to see the new holiday lighting package at Toy Story Land, which will be debuting like days before we get there. Yeah, well, I mean, day. I mean, literally day. Oh, day. You know, oh okay. You know, wow. If things are running to the schedule that I'm hearing, they may actually maybe walk in and they're like, here, here's a box full of bulbs. Start screwing them in. Which we're happy to do. We're happy to do. To loop back to the Coronado Springs last year, when we were there, they were in the middle of building the, the brand new super executive tower and doing all of the work. So it's going to be kind of fun for those of you who were into the what's going to be up and running in time for the 50th anniversary because they it will won't be open by then but there'll be a <laughs> lot of fun construction fences that to look over in fact you yes. know the, maybe you know drew and i will lead some after hours tours yes but just to sort of walk through what the event's going to be it it starts on november 9th we have some kind of an uh, informal welcome dinner at pepper market that night and then the next day we start off we're having a private breakfast in Harambe Village. Ooh. Yes, yes. You know, in fact, did I ever tell you my great Joe Rohde story about this is that new sort of they built the extension food market kind of a thing? Yes. So Joe goes in and sure enough, they have all of these funky tables and all of these funky chairs. But they had matched all of the funky chairs to their particular tables. And Joe, for a half hour, proceeds to carry, you know, it's like, no, no, it's, it's, this is Africa. Nothing matches. And so right. he, he proceeds to move every single chair around the thing till everything is so hopelessly mishmashed. But now it looks great because it looks right. authentic. Anyway, from after we do, we're going to be in the park there. I'm going to start, actually start the story of Pixar in the parks with the really the first attraction, you know, that it's tough to be a bug, which... What Nana Money by Pixar? They were so busy nope. on A Bug's Life. They didn't have anybody in-house that could yeah, work on it. Yeah, that was Rhythm and Hughes, right? There you go. Yep. And then from there, it's off to Art of Animation. We're, we're going to talk about how they sort of supersized all of the, you know, the figures for Cars and for Nemo to work within that space. And then we'll, we'll see if we can sneak over and climb up on the tower to uh <laughs> the skyliner check that out right i, I didn't say that out loud <laughs> Aaron, cut that part out <laughs> and then uh from there we're, we're gonna go over to the magic kingdom for the night and we're the group is gonna do buzz light your space ranger spin to see who gets the big score there then come sunday we head over to to epcot where we're gonna do you head to the living seas and do the nemo stuff there and course check out have you done the new version of turtle talk that that's incorporated the the finding dory yeah i have there was one day where i was alone at Mm -hmm. california adventure and i just needed to sit and check my email and Mm -hmm. so i went and sat in the back of the theater and and watched it and it's really cute it's Mm -hmm. really cool i think you're gonna if you haven't seen it yet you're gonna like it a lot and then from there back to the hotel where we're drew and i are gonna do a a live version of fine tuning then we end up, we head back that uh, that evening to Disney Hollywood Studios just after dusk so we can check out this new nighttime lighting package as well as the brand new uh, Toy Story Land. And we're going to award a prize to whoever snags the high score on Toy Story Mania. And then come Monday morning, we're going to do an informal breakfast at Pepper Market. You hang out and thank everybody for coming. But it, it's going to be from Friday night to, to Monday morning. Two plus days of fun activities and great stories, and we're hoping we can get a lot of you guys to come out for this. Cause yeah, we'd love to see you. And Jim and I have not been to Toy Story Land yet, so we're very excited to just be there and this to experience true. it with you guys. So. This is true. Very much look forward to those of you who can come out. Uh, heading into the rest of of September, we've got Smallfoot coming up. Uh, we've got what else is going on? 
Well, we have the Batman the Animated Series complete set coming out in October. Yes, yes. Which I'm so excited about. Mm -hmm. Did you see that side-by-side comparison of the opening sequence? Yeah. If not... If not, yeah, you have to watch it. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, there's a lot of stuff coming up. Is that Star Wars show coming out this year? What, the Star Wars Resistance? Resistance? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's October. Okay. Dan Z and I will be talking about this shortly, but it just, it just cracks me up that sometimes Disney just gets a little too naked about its, you know, cradle-to-grave policy. Right. Star Wars Resistance is basically Dave Filoni you know, does wonderful, wonderful work with the, the, the animated stuff for Clone Wars and Rebels and now this, but this series is deliberately tailored basically to appeal to eight-year-olds. So yeah. It's, it's a, a racing show, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I just, for me, I just find it hilarious that in the exact same window where you announce your... We created something to, to get young kids interested in Star Wars, you know. Then we we, we feel Uga's Cantina, where you know, <laughs> you know, where you know, if you're an adult, you know, you can wander into and buy an alcoholic beverage because maybe Dad, after the fifteenth time, he has to open his wallet and buy something in the marketplace. It's I, I need a drink. I'm, right. You know, I'm I'm never getting out of here alive. <laughs> cashing in the 401k you know um and it's just the notion of you know so you know let's make sure that star wars appeals to adults by having alcohol and let's make sure that star wars appeals to kids who can then grow up to be adults and then buy alcohol at uga's cantina right. i mean it's just it just gets a little naked sometimes right I mean, i'm just looking for a little finesse or or, or right. at least separate the announcements yeah when do we get the Star Wars program for the 15-year-old girls? You know, just sort right. of like, you know, the, that market segment. Wasn't that I, Forces of Destiny? I guess that was a little Oh, my younger. God, you're right. It is. Yeah. Oh, right. yeah. oh, oh, my God. There we are. Well, and we would also love to know, you know, what you guys want to hear us talk about. This is what I want to do for Halloween. I want to figure out what happened to that, that Haunted Mansion Halloween special they announced in 2015. Oh, I want to I... uncover that story. All right. So there, there's that. I mean, so you let us know what you want us to talk about. Yeah, yeah. We've got the 25th anniversary edition of Nightmare Before Christmas coming out fairly yes, shortly. Yes, I just got mine in the mail the other day. It has okay. a sing-along version. So. Speaking of Halloween-related stuff, I mean, just I, what fascinates me is that, again, we wouldn't have a Toy Story if they hadn't been a Nightmare Before Christmas. That's one oh, of the sure. stories we can get into. But more to the point, one of the reasons initially, you want to know why there were no Toy Story toys for the, when that movie was released in November 1995, you know, the, they all went clean, like literally the five toys that they made yeah. you know, were, were gone the opening weekend. It, it was because Disney had overbought for Nightmare. You know, they thought, oh, you know, Tim Burton just made that that Batman movie that was huge, and let's make billions of toys because people are really going to want to give the kid an oogie boogie to go to bed with. So much of that stuff got remainder. It was like, so here comes Toy Story through the pike, and it's just sort of like, oh no, no. Yeah, I remember going to the Disney store and seeing. You remember the toys were in casket-shaped boxes. There we go. You know. Yeah. And, and nothing says warm, loving holiday like that toy shape, <laughs> you know. So, but but all right, tell you folks again as we get we move from September into October. I mean, we'll be back with the show later in September, and as we slide into October, we'll start to get into the nightmare stories and and you know that sort of thing. But on behalf of uh, myself, Mr. Taylor, thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor.